So I've done uh, uh, more uh, experimental wireless design recently and then changed to something which is more theoretical. So we were discussing what to present. I said, okay, maybe something more theoretical will be, and it also excites me these days quite a lot, but I'll be happy to talk about other stuff as well. And this is a relatively recent work done in the last year or so. So I was, uh, I'll try to kind of uh, inspire you and excite you about this direction of work and uh, why I believe it's important and there'll be some interesting uh, both research problems, so research topics, and impacts in, 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 in future. And so it's about how to build, in general I'd say it's about how to build uh, analytic algorithms for uh, large data sets. And, uh, and, and, and in particular account, uh, looking at two, two examples like uh, accounting and uh, one simple machine learning algorithm. And just to illustrate what are the points and what are the difficulties of making these algorithms work. And so, uh, what is the problem of processing big real-time data sets? So it's an interesting problem now. There are lots of buzzwords now. People talk about stream processing when you have this data coming in a, uh, in a data center or something. You have lots of data continuously coming and you want to calculate something on top of this data. You have something called now casting, which uh, is a term in the, econo uh, in the economics which I think uh, denotes uh, instantaneous knowledge of uh, economics parameters like uh, I don't know GDP and so on so not have to wait for a few months to calculate them but instantaneously know what they are so there are lots of interesting applications of uh, of the big data and I mean I guess you can read about it and hear about it all over so the question that uh, <coughs> we are interested in is how to process the uh, the, the data in uh, in real time how to actually do these these calculations and um, so what is the characteristics of this system? The, system? the characteristics is that you have this data which comes in the system and it gets distributed somehow around the machines in the system. And we're talking about these data centers which have tens of thousands of machines and the data is of huge orders, like billions of uh, items and things like that. And you want to do some processing on those data, right? And, uh, and so it's difficult to do brute force because it's simply of the sheer volume. But another difficulty is that the data has to be distributed around. You cannot do it in a single machine. And if the data is distributed around, you also need to deal with the distributed aspect of, of the data. And so, uh, so this can, there, there are several ways, several ways to model this, and there are several, I guess, interesting theoretical problems that could come out of it. Mainly uh, CS theoretical community and uh, distributed systems and so on. This is one formulation that we are, well, covering in this talk. Uh, and this is a continuous distributed monitoring. So that means you have a distributed system and your, da your data is distributed across the system and you need to continuously track a function of this data. So, for example, you have data that comes, say some numbers, and they get distributed by uh, an adversary to nodes in the system. I have k sites, this is my data center with lots of uh, machines in data center, 
and this data that arrives gets distributed across them in adversarial and when I say adversarial you might have some load balancing algorithm that you don't know what it is doing it might be reasonable it might be unreasonable but we don't make any assumptions about where the data ends up so somehow we have this data uh, around and we want to track a function of this data at any point in time I want to know the value of some function of all the data that has arrived so in terms of I don't know uh, economics, this might be uh, some measures of performance of the economy, I want to know GDP or whatever, some, some kind of uh, parameters of it. And we need to do it continuously. Now, uh, this can be very difficult. So, so what, what, what I need to do then is maybe I need to ship all the data to the coordinator and then calculate the, this function. Uh, and and I'll, I'll give you an examples of this later. So it will just, uh, this is just to motivate the whole, the, 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 the whole setting. But it might be very difficult because you, you need to kind of get hold of all the data sometimes. This function can be, uh, can, 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 uh, be of different forms. So depending on what is the structure of this function, it might be more or less difficult. And so uh, in very often it's efficient to approximately tracking this function. And so if you have uh, one billion data points, right, and if you lose some of them, uh, it won't really affect a lot your result. But it could save a lot of your calculation time. So if you do it in a smart way, you can actually have a very approximate value of the function uh, with a much less computational effort. So that's the kind of a goal what we are striving to. We want to minimize communication cost in the sense how much we want to communicate across and maintain some prescribed uh, relative error. And again, I'll, I'll give you an ex example in a few slides of a specific problem what this means. So this is the kind of a setting. And then just to put it in a, a larger context, I guess, there is a lot of work uh, in the computer science community on, on streaming and semi-streaming problems. And the streaming problem is something like where you have uh, your data arriving at one site, maybe a router, and you want to count the IP addresses that come and you want to find uh, some things called heavy hitters, which are the most uh, popular IP numbers, uh, addresses, or you want to find some statistics of that. And you have so much data that you cannot store it, but you then need to do calculation. Basically, whenever you receive an item, you do some calculation and you have to drop it. Semi-streaming problems are something where you're allowed to do few passes of a data, but you can never store lots of data in the problem. So there, there, is, um, uh, there are lots of recent related works and related problem formulations that are being studied. And it's all in the context of uh, very large data sets where you are constrained in one way or another, either space and the memory size or, or time you have to process or communication complexity. So this type of problems fits in this kind of larger context. Another interesting thing to compare it to is like there was lots of work on parallel programming and in, since the 60s, 70s and onwards. And the parallel programming is basically asks how well you can parallelize certain tasks. And if you have several processing units, does your uh, speed up scale with the, with the number of processing units. Uh, this, is a this is a different problem in the sense that uh, the data is, uh, you know, this is so, so large that you cannot store all the data in one place. So in the parallel programming, typically, all these units have access to all the data and you want to speed up. Now we have data all over. So there is a communicational uh, problem there. You need to, uh, you cannot see all the data at any point, right? So you need to do design uh, sometimes very different algorithms to accommodate for this constraint, which comes from a specific problem we are, we are studying. Uh, then uh, another related set of related works in, is uh, uh, about distributed systems like computer networks, social networks, and so on, where um, 
basically the network is the data, right? So you want to calculate something, you want to find uh, the nearest, uh, shortest path from one uh, person to another, but then you involve people that are on this path. So the computational um, um, units are essentially the data of interest. Also ad hoc network, if you do like in wireless ad hoc networks, mesh networks, if you do scheduling, the algorithm is run on a graph of a network and each node do it locally. Here, in, in this problem is different because we have much more data than we have proce uh, uh, processing units. So, so again, we have to treat it differently. And finally, uh, the metrics of interest, as we'll see in a few slides, are different. So essentially what we have, we have very large data sizes, let's say billions of items or something like that. We have lots of sites, let's say like 10, 000, tens of thousands of sites in a data center. And uh, we have some accuracy in, uh, in, 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 in how accurate we want this to, uh, the, the result to be. So let's say accuracy is say 1% or so. Right. So then what we actually go for is we want ideally to have algorithms that are sublinear in the size of data sets. Right. So that would be perfect right? if, because the data is so big. We would also want to be sublinear in number of sites. Right. And we also want to be say, typically we get some polynomial inaccuracy 1 over epsilon. So it's not only enough to be polynomial, right? We want to be polynomial with, uh, we want to be actually sub-polynomial, sub-linear even, right, in some cases, because some of these values are really big. So this is just to put in context, again, I'll, I'll give you uh, more details of each algorithm. It'll be easier to, I guess, follow the, the, the motivation. This is just to give a kind of a high-level uh, overview. And uh, <coughs> so the, I guess the works from these communities have been uh, uh, in the similar types of works have been done in different communities for the last, well, depends how you count, at least 10 years. Uh, but uh, this, this constri uh, continuous distributed monitoring problem as a general formulation is relatively new. It's maybe 2007 or 8. Uh, some of the first papers that defined the model. Uh, and so far, there have been lots of work on some kind of simple statistics, so to say, like if you want to do a histogram of the data set that arrives, or if you want to do, if you want to count heavy hitters, if you want to do approximate entropy of things like that. But um, so the question is, can we actually go beyond? And in a way, from a practical point of view, these are toy examples. Like what we want to do is what, what we would, in, uh, not us as researchers, but what we would nowadays want to do is want to calculate page rank graph, or we want to find I don't know, the shortest part on Facebook graph, or we want to do big data, big scale machine learning problems. These are the things we want to solve. Uh, and these initial, uh, and they're very difficult, right? So these initial problems were also very difficult, but they only address like a tip of the iceberg, right? So we want to uh, go on and see uh, as a kind of like a, a more long-term research direction, how far you can go and how, uh, how we can solve some of these important big problems in this setting, which is a relevant setting because that's what these data centers do nowadays. And so in this work, uh, I'd like to discuss two problems that we recently looked at and give you some idea how we can solve them. And this will probably motivate more the problems as well and in, in the interesting uh, aspects of them. And so the first one is a tracking a sum of a non-monotonic input stream. So basically, we want to sum all the items that come, and it seems like a very simple application, and it's uh, highly non-trivial how to do it, and it's also very important for many other applications as a building block, which I'll illustrate in a, in a moment. And the other one is a 
our first take on the machine learning problem, which is a distributed online experts problem, and I'll, I'll explain it uh, uh, briefly then as well afterwards. So the goal is just to give you some uh, ideas about these problems and what are the difficulties, how we can solve that, and hopefully motivate you for the whole like research direction, if, if possible. And then if you have any problems, uh, any questions during the talk, please uh, interrupt me uh, as, as I go. Uh, and this is, these are recent work with a bunch of my co-authors, uh, uh, my, uh, my colleague Milan Vojnovic, who is uh, at MSR Cambridge, and then also uh, Chomin Liu, who is uh, um, uh, recently graduated at Harvard, uh, and uh, this one as well with Varun Kanada, also from Harvard, a, a, a machine learning theoretician as well. So, so with a bunch of collaborators. Um, so first about the continuous distributed sum tracking. So, Again, this is basically the basic setting we have. This is our data center where we have lots of these nodes that receive uh, data. And this comes from the wherever from the outside world. And then we have this coordinator who can be one of these nodes elected to do a task on this data. And, um, and in this case, this function we want to track is the sum of all of the nodes, sum of all the, of the values, right? Now, uh, this is a very easy computational problem. We just sum these things. But the key difficulty is that uh, we want to track this continuously. At any point in time, we want to know this sum, right? So if we want to do an accurate tracking, that means whenever we receive a data, we need to send it to the coordinator, and the coordinator adds it to a sum, and it keeps the accurate sum. But that means every single of these one billion data points have to go to a single node, and this will fail, right? We, we want to have this load distribution, load balancing, because we have 10,000 nodes, to accept this load. If we send everything to one node, we defeat the point of the whole thing. So uh, instead of that, we want to maintain an estimate which says basically the s uh, hat is something between 1 minus epsilon and 1 plus epsilon s of t. And for most of the applications, this is uh, perfectly fine. Yeah. You mentioned you are considering a Byzantine model. So are your servers are Byzantine or the data can like? Just as data. Just the data. And do you have some like? Bound, like how much of the data can be corrupt? Uh, there is no corruption in the data. Uh, you, can, uh, you can play, so I need to guarantee that, um, that I'm going to give you, whatever data you give me, I'll give you the sum. Your data is always accurate, but you can give me any combination of data, right? So think of this xi as a sequence, right? So what I guarantee is that whatever sequence you give me, I'll give you a correct estimate. So there's no Byzantine behavior in the sense of a classical Byzantine problem where people are unreliable. No, this, uh, in, in a, this is more like a uh, theoretical computer science where adversarial means whatever input I give you, I will work correctly. But the input is assumed to be correct once you give it to me, right? There's no... Uh, right, so, so instead of uh, finding the exact thing, I just want to have an estimate. And this is typically what people do anyway in, in like polling campaigns for, for, for the elections and things. You don't care about, like, you have like 1% accuracy, sure, you do, you do 1,000 phone calls in 10 or 1 million phone calls and you get a very good estimate. So this is something that is most commonly done and it's a reasonable assumption and you have lots of, uh, when you have lots of data. So, and then the question is if we have this kind of constraint, then we might not need to send every single data point to the central machine, so we are not going to overload this network. So the question is if we have this, uh, if we want to maintain this approximate counter, right, how do we minimize the communication across this? Uh, how do we do that with, while minimizing the communication demand? How many of these numbers we have to send? So one thing we can do, we can sum them locally, 
and send some partial sums, but we need to make sure that at any point we guarantee this thing. Whenever a new number arrives, at every point in time we need to have this, this, this satisfied. Right? And so that's the, that's the, the, the distributed uh, sum counting problem. So there are lots of examples. I'd like to give you a few because it feels like a toy problem, but I, we think it's kind of quite important for either directly applied or as a part of other stuff. So one thing is if you think of a stock market and you want to count, you invest in different stocks and in different potentially markets, and you want to know where your investment is, right? And so uh, you want to track maybe the behavior of your stocks, right? And you keep on getting these numbers, but if you have lots of data around, you might uh, and you, you might have a delay in communication. If you're, uh, if you're investing across many stock markets, you cannot ship all the data immediately. So you can do some, something of that sort to make sure that uh, you only communicate as much as you need to have some, some kind of estimate. So that, that's one, one application of a simple counting which might be of interest. Um, another one is uh, something called F2 tracking. It's somewhat technical, but it's a very popular model in the computer science. Um, and uh, let me first explain you briefly what it is and, and then, and then uh, basically um, why, what is it used for. So if I give you uh, a data set which consists of an element alpha and z of t meaning I add or I remove an element, right? So they're like packets coming in a queue or so they can come and they can go. If I put plus one they mean they come and if I put minus one they go. And they're in a set from one to m, so in a countable set, in a, in a finite set essentially. And uh, so at any, uh, at any point in time <coughs> I want to know uh, how many uh, of the elements of the same type I have in the system. And not only that, I want to count, so mi is uh, the number of the elements that are in the system of type m, uh, of type i. Okay. So you can think of a router, and the router has uh, lots of TCP connections going on, and whenever a connection is, is starts, I put here the IP address and plus one. When the connection finishes, I put uh, uh, the same IP address minus one. And so I can see how many uh, uh, connections are open to the same uh, to the same IP address, for example. And this is like this this denotes how many of them are open to the same IP address. And then what I want to know is like the the sum of uh, basically squares of these, like a second moment of 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 of, of um, the frequency how how many of these I have. And this is interesting uh, for various follow-up applications as well. One thing that they use for like uh, anomaly detection where uh, if you see too, if this thing goes too high, that means there might be a denial of service attack and things like that. And the key thing here is that you can use this to have, uh, like, um, you can use this to have, uh, these are all linear operators, so that's why you can use counters to do all the iterative, iterative things there. Uh, and then quickly, other two examples, like just to, uh, so any statistical, simple linear statistical model where you track a sum of things, right? Again, you can do with counters, because if you count all of these separately, then your sum will have the same accuracy. If you do, so if you can track each of these, num uh, of these variables x1, x2, x3 that could be, uh, come from the environment, then you will know the sum with the same accuracy. If you do any kind of stochastic approximation, iterative uh, gradient descent, whatever you want, basically, if this is your gradient or this is your iteration in, a, in, a, in, a, uh, in each round, right? and you want to maintain the sum. So this is essentially 
a, a counter. You basically add something which is a value of, of the environment and you want to maintain an accurate estimate of the, uh, of the actual value. So lots of iterative algorithms you can count, cover with the, same, um, with the same idea. This could be a vector. In this case, you will have a fewer counter. Uh, of course, if the dimension of this is very large, then you can't help. But if this is reasonably uh, small dimension, then you can, if it doesn't scale in billions, then, then you're fine with this as well. So the, hopefully by now I persuaded you that this is a, a potentially an important problem, not just a toy example, but it's very instructive in a way how you can uh, deal with these algorithms. Uh, so uh, so uh, just to give a bit more detail now, going back to the problem about the problem definition. So, uh, so here are the key parameters. We have the k sites, so that's how many of them we process. And again, this is of order of, say, 10,000, just to give you an idea what kind of numbers we're looking at. The number of items that we are processing overall as a sign of this trip is very large, so say billions. And then we want to have a relative error which will be say 1% or something like that. And uh, <coughs> so the stream here can be non-monotonic. So, so it could be positive or negative, these, these adds, uh, additions. And the reason why I say that there was a, so we basically, our work deals with non-monotonic streams. They were previous uh, papers that dealt with the monotonic stream. So I'll just give a, a brief idea how you can deal with what is the difference and so on later. And then in terms of the, uh, the arrival model, so adversary decides what moments the data will arrive and well, where it will arrive in a sense of, uh, of uh, which site it will arrive. Uh, in terms of what are the value of the, uh, of, of these, um, of the data items, that we're going to discuss in a, in a moment. And then the key thing, the question is, what is the minimum communication? How much data I have to send across in every round to maintain my, my accurate uh, approximation of the, of the counter? Right, so sorry, this is the, the counter. So this is what I want to stay and, uh, maintain, and what is the minimum communication? <coughs> so, uh, so the first observation actually is um, there is an easy, easy lower bound that you can't do better than. And so think of... Think of this kind of input, that adversary sends plus one, minus one, plus one, minus one, and so on. So your sum is going to be one, zero, one, zero, and so on. So if you do that, right, your relative error is always going to be violated. You need to communicate after every round. So because simply because from, yeah, right, moving from one to zero, you make an well, infinite relative error the other way around. So, uh, so the problem is that if you don't report every round, every second round, you, you, you cannot you will always violate the probability fair. So there is a simple uh, bound which tells if you really have the adversarial sequence, the adversarial arrival and the adversarial times of arrival, you can't do better. So we have to communicate which is linear in n. And remember at the beginning I said we would like to have something sublinear in n. We, want, we don't want, if you have one billion data items, we don't want to communicate each one of them. We want to have substantially uh, less than that. So this is a negative result. So Basically, the question is, can we do something better if we relax the assumptions on the, on, on, on the data a little bit, but not too much. We still want to be re reasonably general. And so in this talk, we actually focus on three types of random processes. So in a way, in a, in a way we are cheating. We're not doing fully adversarial, but the, the reason is because the fully adversarial is obviously too, uh, not a meaningful model in a way. And in this work, we'll focus on, on, on ID random inputs. And this is somewhat artificial, but another interesting input is a random permutation input. And a random permutation input tells you, 
you're an adversary and you choose the sequence x1 to xn, all the billion numbers, but then I randomly permute them, right? And this is in a way reasonable in most of the system, even if the, uh, even if the uh, sequence that comes is very bad, uh, typically the order might not be uh, always respected. So it's not so such a restrictive assumption that uh, it's still kind of quite reasonable assumption that they could be sorted, but you can still define any sequence of that sort. And so the nice thing is typically statistics of random permutations are very close to the statistics of ID random. So we can deal with the proofs and show lots of things for random walks and then use uh, similar bounds to extend this to random permutation. So I will talk about ID random in the, in, when I give uh, intuitions about the proofs, but the whole, everything else, everything holds also in the random permutation model, which is more realistic. And then we also looked at the fractional Brownian motion. And, and, and the key thing is that the algorithm I'll describe works for all of those. So you don't need to know what the input is. Fractional Brownian motion is a continuous time process. So, so I guess in, uh, in every, uh, in, in the, the, the increments are going to be, uh, let me see what's the actual, I think in a sense that they're self-similar but, uh, yeah, I have to look at the... Uh, is it not? I'm not sure about, I'm not sure about the, maybe, maybe the, my terminology here is wrong, but basically there's... It's just means strong, you just mean strong with correlation. Yes. So you think the fraction brown motion is not a good, uh, okay. There was one of my coders who, who was studying this model, so I have to say, I have to admit I didn't come with the name, but he was claiming, I'll, I'll have a look after this on paper. Correlated process, yes. So it has like a certain Hurst uh, parameter values that is. Uh, so in a sense, saying that they don't need to be uh, purely independent. So I think that's more of the uh, the illustration that even for an, for a correlated processes it would work. Well, that's why it's kind of interesting because you've gone from my idea not to something like Markovian that has exponential <coughs> claiming the thing looks like fractional random motion means non dependent. Right. Yes. But okay, it, it holds for certain values of Hertz parameters, so, uh, it, and, and, and the complexity will depend on that, right? So it won't be, so the result, I'm, I'm not discussing it here, we have this in the paper, so it will become more complex as there's, I think there's more dependence, uh, there's less, uh, see, it makes sense, less dependency, there's more, you don't need to, yeah, right. Okay, so the, but the key thing is that it could, uh, we have some guarantees and the same algorithm will work on the correlated process. Uh, right, and so just to give you the the idea of the results, so essentially the um, uh, this ID process can have a drift as well, and the drift means that uh, well, there is a, the, the expected value is, is is say positive, right? But there is a noise, uh, an ID uh, random noise on the top of it with zero mean, and and then as I said, we we are interested in non-monotonic. Uh, uh, non-monotonic uh, values is that if the, the increase is always strictly positive, uh, then you can do, so let me give you the results first. So basically, uh, the most general result is this one here. So we get that the communication complexity is the average, that is the number of communications you need to do over the runtime of a system of the sequence n 
to maintain this uh, accuracy is going to be square root of n square root of k divided by epsilon. So it means uh, it's sublinear square root of n, so it's much smaller than it was, uh, uh, than if you have to communicate every time. And it depends also of the epsilon as the uh, how accurate you want to be. And it's also square root in k in the number of sites you have in the system. Now, this is for the, the, the noise without drift. If you have a drift, right, this drift helps you. And this drift helps you intuitively, and I'll tell you a bit about it, because the most difficult is if you're around the zero, right? As you go, it's become uh, larger and larger. You basically, uh, you have to communicate less and less. So if you always increase, you can do even better thing, and you can, uh, so you, you actually lose the n. So this O tilde is the CS notation, which basically hides log of n. Uh, dependency. So there's log of n hidden here, but we don't care about log of n factor. So it'll be log of n here times square root of k divided by the uh, drift times epsilon, right? So here is the same dependency in k and epsilon, but we don't, we have this, this mu. So clearly if mu is a very small drift uh, below one square root of n, then we are in the second phase. So if we have no drift, a very small drift, we are then in, uh, in this case square root of n. If we have large drift, then the same algorithms detects it and goes and, and kind of does even better, right? Uh, and so we, all, we also have a matching lower bounds that we cannot do better than that. Sorry, um, can I ask another question? Just again, when you originally introduced the bounds, it was kind of associated with a deterministic process. You're looking for something where the SN estimate that you have is definitely between those two bounds. Now you kind of think stochastic. So yeah. is, the, is, the, is the bound now probabilistic? Or is it Sorry, it was, it was, okay, yeah. So this is something I guess in the last year this, the CS community kind of always assumes, and I forgot to mention that. It's a, it's a bound that has its width probability, which is a 1 over n, at least, right? So it's a probabilistic one, but it has to, because you're doing uh, randomized thing, it has to be probabilistic, and it was a probabilistic at the beginning, but it's a classical CS type of bound, it has to go to 0 with 1 over n, with probability, uh, uh, you can make an error with at most 1 over n probability, or 1 over n. Right, correct. Uh, right, so, and, and then in, in the follow-up, we focus on ID random. Uh, inputs. <coughs> so, uh, so the the input then can be defined as the set of these uh, variables that come. There is a drift and there is an ID uh, noise with a with a mean zero, and uh, then these the sites where these x t's arrive are chosen by an adversary, and also the moments when they arrive are chosen by the adversary. So you cannot count on knowing when these things. Uh, that, that you know the clock when these things are coming. And this S of t is the sum uh, of all the variables so far. Uh, and so, uh, essentially, uh, the, the whole thing behaves like a random walk with a drift, so we'll use that in the, in the, in the intuition designing the algorithm. And there is a drifting part and there is a noise part, and the uh, sigma is the variance of a noise. So essentially we see that there is like a, we had a linear component and this is the random walk part that we can, we can analyze. Which has a, a and, and, and then the key intuition is this thing behaves asymptotically like a, like a, a like a Gaussian process uh, with the variance uh, t right so uh, the this thing grows as, as t and this thing grows as square root of t and we'll use that to def to, to 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 schedule our communication essentially this part of it. Uh, so the, the algorithm is slightly complex because we have to uh, deal with different cases and I'll just give you an overview uh, basically of how these cases work and the, the most interesting part is the, 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 
the third part. So I, I spend a little bit more time on, on that. Um, so uh, let me see. I have the better figure of this, right? So there are these three parts here. So the first first part is uh, you can think of this if there is a drift, right? At some point, because the, the drift goes with O of t and the noise goes of O square root of t, where t is how far we've gone, how many items we notice, we can pretty accurately detect when we are, that there is a drift, right? If the drift is sufficiently large. So in this part, if we detect that there is a drift which is sufficiently large, we can use the monotonic counters. And the monotonic counters, that's a, uh, basically a previous works. They just, uh, uh, then we can just use the, uh, uh, we can use them to, to achieve this log of, log of n uh, um, kind of communication complexity, but I'll describe more of the intuition of this more difficult part, so I'll skip that one. I'll just uh, show that there are, there are these, uh, this bit when, where it becomes easier when you detect there is a drift. Then there is the always report part, and this comes from, the, from this intuition from the lower bound saying that if you're around zero, you essentially need to report, right? You can't do much better than there. So here, while we are uh, around zero, we cannot do much. We have to report uh, um, until we leave uh, some boundary which is square root of k epsilon. And the reason is every time we are there, we'll make an error if we don't report. And then the third bit, which is the third part, which is the most uh, interesting, and I guess the, uh, is the something-based algorithm. So in this region, this is where we actually do, uh, we, we, if, if we don't have a drift, then we are most of the time in this part. Means that uh, we are sufficiently large, we don't have to report every time, but we might also go down and we need to still uh, find an algorithm to respect the, 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 the guarantees. So uh, here, is the, uh, here is the algorithm, and I'll then give you an intuition why, how, how does it work and why does it work like that. So uh, when an item arrives, okay, so each of the, uh, each of the nodes, each of the sites in a, in a system have their own estimate, uh, possibly outdated estimate of a sum. And this is the uh, thing called ST. So as a site, I have my prior knowledge of the sum, which, uh, the, what the sum was some time ago, whenever I was updated last time. And then I throw a random coin, which has this biased random coin with this probability of one. And if this thing turns out to be one, then I trigger a sync all thing. So sync all things means that if the site has, if the new uh, item has come to site K, right, and I draw this random coin and this coin says one, okay, then everyone synchronizes. So basically we have K messages, right? So this guy sends his uh, current sum. This guy's, the coordinator asks everyone about the sum. I get the completely accurate sum at this moment, right? And I send it to everyone. So this is just to, so at, at the point of synchronization, everyone is updated and has the new value. So the key thing is how often do you have to synchronize to do that? And, and this is the right probability of synchronization that will guarantee you with very low probability of having an error, uh, of, of violating your, your, your constraints. And so, um, so the, the intuition here is that, uh, suppose we have a single site, right? So the single site receives this data uh, bits, but the coordinator has to make a prediction, right? So uh, the site has to decide when to send this data to the coordinator. So the site in this case has a, the accurate prediction because it's the only one, but the coordinator doesn't. So the site has to decide when to send to the coordinator. And it wants to do it in a lazy way, so to minimize the communication. And in this case, this is simple. 
the coordinator knows exactly what its value is, right? So uh, it can actually send only when it violates the constraint. So there is some process going on here, and if it violates the constraint, the coordinator will sell, or the, the site will send, okay, now, because I'm the only one, I know I violated the constraint, let's send it now to the coordinator. And so essentially, this is the, when the first exits the safe region. Now the problem with this, it cannot generalize to the multi-site case, because no one knows what's the accurate track. So no one can detect this thing. And so for this, we can use the, the uh, statistics of the, of the random walk. And essentially, the random walk, the first pass, if we start from the middle, from after the communication, the first time when we leave the, uh, this, this region, 1 plus epsilon, 1 minus epsilon, is going to be concentrated around epsilon square S square. So not only that's the mean, but it's also with, with, with high probability it's going to be of the same order. So this gives us an intuition basically that uh, wherever we are, the next update should happen with pretty much that uh, uh, proportional to that probability. So that's how we get the epsilon square S square. In a sense, that's when we start violating the, uh, the, 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 the conditions. And it turns out to be with a, with a small probability, with 1 over n uh, uh, probability of, of error. So uh, basically, then this is the, uh, we emulate the single side al algorithm. So this is where this probability of, of tossing the, the coin comes from. Uh, there is a, now that we, we have, uh, well, technical parts of the proofs, we generalize this to, um, to the uh, to, to the randomized random permutation and, and correlated things, uh, but essentially the same algorithm works in both cases. Uh, right, so that's a general overview. So we had like these three mod these three parts, but so the one I described in most details was this part here. But there are also the three other which are kind of uh, used to detect the special cases, if if you wish. Uh, and uh, so that's where we get the upper bound. Basically, this is the square root of k, uh, square root of n epsilon. Or if it has a drift, we go into this monotonic model where we can uh, only deal with the, uh, with the monotonic increases. And so similar, we get similar bounds to, for, for the other uh, cases with the same algorithm. <clears throat> so just a quick intuition about lower bound. I already mentioned it. Essentially, the problem, the, the, the key thing with the lower bound, the observation is that if this is random walk, it's uh, how often the random walk will uh, um, return to zero, and essentially that's where we get uh, square root of n. So in n times horizon, the random walk will hit zero square root of n times. So we need to communicate at least square root of n times. And the, the region where we make an error is a band of size 1 over epsilon. So that's where we get one square root of n 1 over epsilon lower bound, which matches our upper bound. So essentially, in the uh, in this case we, we, we in this case we need to talk asymptotically at least square root of n over epsilon and this can be generalized to this uh, to the uh, uh, to the k sites uh, model as well but it's more a bit more involved so I'll, I'll skip that this just to have an intuition why this is a, a required amount of communication uh, right so then we get the square root of k for the multiple sites okay. So that was for the counters. Now I just want to give you uh, an idea of a different problem, which is related, but more difficult in a sense, and possibly more interesting as well. Uh, but the, same, the model is the same, so hopefully you already have some intuition about what the problems are and, and, and it will be maybe easier to follow this one. So this is something which is kind of well known in the, in the machine learning community, and it's a general problem which is... Uh, often, uh, uh, which is used in surprisingly many different areas, I, I, I found later. 
so it's an expert problem. So uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar. I just give you the. Uh, I wasn't when I when I started with this. Uh, suppose I have an expert, and these experts uh, give me some advice, right? And I can follow. Uh, I hear all the advices, and I follow one of the experts' advice. And depending which of the experts I follow, uh, I'll get certain payoff. And then the typical example, which fits well to the uh, areas we live in, is like a weather forecast. Right? We have several weather forecast channels, and we believe one or the other. And then depending what they say, we take an umbrella or not. And then if it rains, we have zero payoff. If it doesn't rain and we didn't, and we didn't take an umbrella, we get one payoff or so on. So essentially, um, the payoff depends what we, what we, what we, which expert we follow. But we have no way of knowing uh, which one is going to tell us the truth. And this is, the, in a way, the harshest possible expert uh, because the experts are the serial. So the experts uh, don't follow any distribution. They can tell you whatever they want. Uh, so how well can you do in this system? And uh, if you're familiar with multi-unbended problems, the multi-unbended is a s more constrained version of this problem where essentially uh, you choose only one expert but you don't get to see other experts. So in, in, in a way, it's a special case of uh, experts problem where lots of information is hidden. But you only pull one arm and you see one of the experts. And again, the goal is to uh, find an algorithm this will uh, get you the best performance possible. So what best performance possible means is um, there is a notion of regret. And uh, it's a somewhat tricky definition. Uh, so if you look at the first part, so this is the benefit of following a single expert throughout the whole thing, right? So let's say I choose one expert A, and this is the payoff of this expert throughout the whole run on the time horizon T, right? So this is my single best expert in hindsight. And then my algorithm in each, in each slot chooses something which is A of T, right? And then this is, and it could be a randomized algorithm, so I have the expected value here. So this is my algorithm's choice. So the regret in this case is the regret uh, that I have compared to the single best expert in hindsight. So how well do I compare with that one? You could ask how well you compare with the single best choice in every round, right? But in that case, you don't have any, uh, anything better than uh, regret of size of the T, right? So there's no, nothing meaningful you can say. So in a way, the metric is somewhat constructed this way because you can have a non-trivial result. You can get a regret which is square root of t, as I'll show you. But uh, if if you if you choose this kind of if you choose this kind of definition, and this thing, apart from what I, I what is considered as a well-defined problem, it also has lots of uses in in lots of different uh, simple linear op, uh, machine learning algorithms, like. Uh, uh, support vector machines, uh, stochastic gradient descent, the results from this type, these types of results are used to prove the convergence of that. So I think there is uh, lots, of, uh, lots of interest in theory beyond, I mean, it started from somewhat from these, these type of models and then extend to, to other examples. And the thing is here to find a sequence that minimizes this regret. So this is a fairly standard, I guess, uh, machine learning problem uh, that, that is, uh, and so we want to stu study it in a, in a, in a, uh, in a distributed setting. Um, just one question, do you assume we know uh, the hindsight data, or is that just...? You don't, no. You don't. But you want to you, you minimize the regret at the end with respect to what, what is the, at, the, at the very end. You can see it, and then you want to minimize whatever the regret will be at the end. 
over than at one stage. I mean, so my question is, if you, if you do not follow an expert's advice, and well, in the rain example, I know what would have happened, right? But I, if you have a crisis in the eurozone and you don't follow an expert's advice, you will never know what would have happened if had you followed. Right. Yeah, I agree. So that's like. Uh, uh, okay, I, I guess with the euro crisis you have only one uh, round, right? <laughs> it's either doomed or not. But if you could do it several times, then there'll be like a multi-arm bandit problem in which you can choose different experts, right? So that the typical illustration is like a casino, right? So, uh, but it doesn't have to be stochastic. It could be adversarial. And then, in hindsight, you would know... Uh, okay, in, a, in a hindsight, you, you suppose... When, when calculated the hindsight, you suppose you knew everything. Right? So how far are you from there? So here we looked at only at the experts problem because it's easier to deal with, but most of the results, I believe, would generalize anyway to the multi-embedded. It's just a little bit more difficult. You have some random something to add to that, but I don't think it will change a lot. So uh, I just to give a little bit of intuition, how do you do this, what the regret is, and so on, it might be helpful for later to understand the, the, the next few, it's not very long, the next few slides. So here is the algorithm to, 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 to achieve the best regret is very simple. You... Uh, it's called like follow the perturbed leader. And there are other types of algorithms, they're all of a similar kind. So what do you do? You look at the quality of all the experts so far. Right? So once you, you choose your decision, and then, uh, then uh, basically um, once you choose your decision, uh, you see all the other decisions. And then the next round, you look at all the experts, and you choose the best one, but you add some random perturbation to this, some random noise. So you're not always choosing the best expert, but you, run some, you add some random noise, and the key thing is what is the variance of this random noise. So you will bias the better experts, but you will not always choose the best experts. And this, if you do that, your expected regret with respect to the best arm is of square root of t, which is quite interesting if you think about it. You don't know anything about what they'll do, right? So they're adversarial, they can choose anything they want. Uh, the, your only constraint is that you don't compare with the single best expert in hindsight, and you can still do as good as O square root of t. You don't need, intuitively you'd say O of t, the, so you, you can make as many errors, linear errors in the, in the horizon, but you actually can do O of square root of t. So it's quite an interesting uh, uh, result. Uh, and, and so just to give you an example why this works, so consider two types of adversarial sequences. Uh, this is, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping this is going to be, uh, e these graphs are going to be easy to understand. So, uh, let's say we have two experts, P1 and P2, right? And uh, instead of plotting the P1 and P2, I plot P1 minus P2, so just that to plot it on a single dimension. So here, this point means P1 is 1, P2 is 0, so you should choose expert 1. And this point means P1 is 0 and P2 is 1, so you should choose expert 2. And here you should choose expert 1 again, and here you should choose expert 2 again. So this is the adversarial sequence. Okay. So the question is, what does your algorithm do here? Okay. So at the beginning, this is number one point. You don't know anything, so you choose randomly. Now, at the time two, right, you know that, uh, that, uh, you know that in, in past, your expert one was the best. Right? So if you don't perturb, you will choose the expert one. But here, we add some perturbation. This is the expected reward I need to guess. So I will tend to choose more the expert one because it was better in the past, but not always because I have this random perturbation. So my expected loss here is not going to be one, it's going to be something smaller. And this is basically the proportion is the, the, the variance of the noise. 
and we're going to see that it, the variance of the noise should be 1 over square root of t. So we lose something here. Now in the next step, basically, uh, because we saw that this guy was equally good as this guy, so we don't make any loss, right? Because we, we just, I mean, we, we, we again choose randomly. Both arms are equal, both experts are equal. And here again we choose, because in the last three steps P1 was better, so we would choose P1, but again we add a noise, so that's why we, we're not going to make as bad, as, as, as a, uh, uh, such a loss as if we just followed the best one experiment. So this is how we, in a way, adding noise, we protect ourselves from the other very adversarial sequences where it's really like a zigzag thing. On the other hand, we can have a case where uh, expert one is always the best, right? So in this case, we should intuitively always follow expert one. But now, because of the noise, we don't really, right? So we still kind of are close to zero. But if expert one is good for a while, right, then this part here is going to add lots of weight. So then we're going to be closer and closer to expert one. And so the trick here is to choose the variance of the noise to kind of get the same regret in both cases. And that's going to be 1 over square root of t. And so that's why you get uh, the regret of square root of t. So it's a very nice uh, algorithm, and it has a, uh, a very simple algorithm. But the key thing is what we need to have is just the sum of the, uh, uh, the history of all the experts, and then we add this random variable, which is easy. So it seems like amenable to nice distributed implementation. So that's, that's something we want to, to look into. But it's still important. From, and, and one example, um, right, so, so in the, now in the distributed uh, environment, so we assume that, so how, how, do we, how do we formulate this problem in the distributed environment? So uh, suppose, uh, let me give you an example first. I should have swapped these two slides. So uh, an uh, odd placement algorithm, they don't really use this algorithm, but they could in, uh, I think there are more sophisticated things, is um, so I have to, uh, I do a search, right, and I have to get an odd related to the query, right? So there are several odds I can place, and I don't know which one the user will click. Right? So I'll place an odd, and then uh, the user clicks a different odd. So I can, uh, so I need to find a strategy that will maximize my, uh, my, my uh, benefit with respect of, I use historical performance to predict where they will be, but in, in, the, in the adversarial model where I don't have any statistics of the guys, what they did, in the, in the, in the, um, what they did previously, the best thing I can do is this minimal regret algorithm. So that's one of the examples where this thing could do. I need to, based on these histories of previous uh, uh, predictions, I need to, to propose the, the best algorithm. So that's just an example of, of how how do you choose ZI? Um, so Z, uh, it, it's basically, if you think of this, right, in this case, uh, the smaller the Z is, right, you, ha you make a bigger error in a, this zigzag sequence, right? So you want to uh, have it big, right? In this case, you want to have it small. So you, basically there is an easy calculation, you want to have a trade-off. And you find that the Z is the uh, noise with the variance of 1 over square root of T. To, to give you the regret, which is the same in both cases, and in all cases. And you make an IID procedure? Yes. I don't think it uh, makes a difference, because it's adversarial, so I don't think it would help you if you could do anything. So There are lots of generalizations of this, so you could, yeah, uh, even of the metric of regret and so on, it's like a very large area. But in this case, it works for ID. And so in the, in, the, in the distributed expert problem, 
uh, we, and some, somewhat motivated with the previous ad example, uh, so the users click on the search pages and then we need to select an ad. And there are lots of users, like billions of users. So we cannot use one machine to predict that. So we have to distribute these requests to different machines. And so the requests come to different uh, sites, right? And each site in data center has to decide for a different user which ad to serve. And when it serves the ad, it sees the payoff. That particular site sees what the user has clicked on. So it gets the payoff. But the thing is that if the user one is served by site two, right? Then site two observes the payoff, but the other sites don't know this payoff. So we can ship the payoff everywhere, or we can just do it locally. So it's a similar kind of problem as before, which is exactly the same kind of trade-off, how much we communicate and what kind of error we get on this. And um, so, uh, so, and we have two, uh, essentially two models. This is slightly different than previously. Uh, the one I just described is a site prediction model where each site makes a prediction and then serves users uh, down there uh, where, and, and so the prediction is made locally on the site. And there is a coordinator prediction model, which is the one we used in the counter, where the prediction made by the, by the coordinator. So the coordinator doesn't a priori knows, know anything, uh, but, but uh, it has to make predictions. So it, we need to have more communication. This is a detail, and I'll just uh, focus on the site prediction model. Uh, uh, just give you a slide of, of, of that. Uh, just this was basically to, see, to show you why the model is not exactly the same as in the counter thing. It's, I think this is for the application, for motivation application. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, and the other interesting thing is how do we uh, choose the adversary? So here, the, the adversary gives you uh, adversarial inputs, but there are two options. Uh, adversary can know when you communicate to the coordinator or to everyone else, or cannot know, right? So if the adversary knows everything, including your communication pattern, then it's an adaptive adversary. If the adversary uh, doesn't know what your algorithm does, then it's called an oblivious adversary. And there, I mean, it, it's, the adaptive one is clearly more difficult, right? And so here the question is, what is the trade-off between regret and communication, right? So it's, it's the same question, just a different problem. So how much of these we need to communicate? And uh, I'll, I'll go quickly to this. And so just to illustrate two obvious solutions, one is to mimic the previous example. We just send everything to the coordinator. And then we get all square root of t, which we had before, but then the communication cost is all of t, right? Because we have to send everything. The other obvious example is no communication. We don't communicate at all. So then each of them will get t over, t over k uh, items, the regret is square root of t over, k, t over k, but times k because we have k sites and it becomes square root of kt. So the regret is larger, but the communication is zero. And these are the obvious two ways, right? And the k question we can ask is can you go in between those? If we make a trade off, uh, if we want to decrease, so maybe all of t communication is, is not possible, can we actually decrease the communication cost? And decrease uh, and increase slightly the regret, not have this very, very kind of uh, uh, the, the worst case regret. And so, uh, I guess, in interest of time, I'll skip. If you're interested, I can tell you later. So, basically, the, the, the key result is that if we have adaptive advice adversary, uh, there is a strong lower bound which says that you cannot do better, right? If the adversary knows your communication pattern, then if you want to go below of square root of kt, you must use at, at least t over k communication. So you have to be linear in t in communications. So it's a negative result. 
uh, we have an algorithm that, uh, that, uh, that actually, if in case of oblivious adversary, which is a reasonable one, the adversary does not know what you do in your data center, right? So it's kind of quite a reasonable one. Then you can achieve a regret which is parameterized with this, this L, right? And, and the communication is also parameterized with this L. But essentially, you can go below of uh, square root of kt and having the communication with, uh, lower than t. So we have an algorithm which can actually do some kind of combination over different blocks of different sizes which can, which can do that. So again, I'll, I'll, I'll skip the, the details. And another thing which is interesting uh, is now we had a counters previously described. So we could use a counters for this one and say, well, the regrets are actually done. Uh, that, I mean, we just want to count. We have several arms. We want to count each arm separately using these this counters we proposed. Can we actually uh, can we use counters to do that? And it turns out we cannot. We need much more involved. The algorithms we propose is well, it's quite complex. And if we, if we use counters, then again, um, uh, basically what this says, okay, I'll skip the, the details, is that, that we cannot get a better trade-off than the one. So we, we need something more than a counters in this case. It's not enough to have a, 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 a to count the, the benefits, with, the payoffs with, the, with some accuracy. Uh, okay, so a summary. Uh, so what I try to, um, I try to, 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 to get you interested at least a bit in this, in this whole topic, which is um, approximate tracking of, uh, continuous, uh, of continuous approximate tracking of uh, a function in a distributed system. And the algorithm design is challenging, even for this relatively simple problem, it takes lots of thinking to see how do you get a trade-off between the two things. We looked at the two, uh, at the two algorithms in this talk. There are uh, quite a few others, but they're all basically very simple. And, uh, and, and uh, I feel that they're important. I mean, lots of these things, I mean, people have either ad hoc solutions or don't even know how to do lots of these things. And uh, uh, so mainly statistical, uh, basic statistics or studies, uh, studied and I think we are one of the first, there's another paper recently, very recently on the machine learning algorithm of a similar kind of model. Uh, and uh, for example, graph algorithms and other things, if you want to find the shortest path or a page rank or things like that, it's all very, very, I mean, it's a difficult problem, but uh, it's not even clear how you would do it at all. If you, you know, you want to find something, you have a heuristic, gives you some communication complexity, gives you some accuracy, you have no clue what it gives you, what's the best way to do it. It's, um, I feel it's quite an interesting area, very tough as well. And then there are uh, variants of a problem which uh, maybe the semi-streaming model is more interesting in a sense that it, what we assumed was that the data is continuously fed into the data center and we need to track accurately after, uh, after every item that arrived. So this is maybe important for financial things and something where it's really important to have like a uh, uh, continuous tracking. In most of the applications you want to do it once a day or something, so it, the, the continuous part doesn't really matter, but there is still some incremental uh, thing to it, right? You have previous calculations, you have some new data, and you want to, meet, you want to do the pass, uh, you want to do it, you know, the next day you want to do another pass over data, again with minimal communication, using the previously calculated thing to, uh, to, to achieve similar kind of accuracy. So it's a slightly, it's called like a semi-streaming model, slightly relaxed type of model, but still quite challenging. I mean, it gives you more freedom in a way, but then it's more difficult to, to reason about it. So I think that's, yeah, that's, that's about it. Thank you.
Yeah, that's a good point. Now we had this uh, lots of uh, thinking about that. Uh, so in a way, in um, so we we published this in a theoretical database community. So some it was somewhat influenced by uh, the way they think about it. And in a, in a way, the relative error is the worst case. The absolute error uh, we did uh, we did have uh, comments in the same direction, but everyone kind of agrees that if you can do it with relative error. Uh, then you can do it with absolute error with less of the... So that's one... But if you did the absolute error, it would be identical to your problem of all those being near zero. Uh, okay, it will depend... Because the, the point is your error packs get much broader as your value gets greater. Right, that's true, that's true. You'll be bounded by the error, yes. No, that's true. So it's a thinner tube than your... True, yeah, true. I think... Uh, well, there was I, so I can't remember what other types of error they had. Yeah, you're right, but this one, the absolute error would be um, would be less less. Uh, it would be more strict. Uh, there was an over. There was a survey paper with different types of errors, and and I don't remember it now exactly what one, what are the other ones they considered. They considered, but this turned out to be the most harsh one of the ones they had. So that's one thing. The other thing, which is more interesting, is um, I guess if you do. Uh, for some of these applications, like uh, if you do matrix, so we had a few examples which are simple machine learning examples, like uh, if you do uh, Bayesian uh, updates, like uh, uh, having a prior and then updating the prior and so on, you have multi matrix multiplications, and then the relative error will give you a relative error on the, uh, on, on the multiplier and so on. So the way this propagates uh, through the system for but I agree it's not we, we only motivated with the with two examples one was this f2 example which uh, which is again something that is uh, more motivated by excitement in, a, in the in the community of uh, there uh, than than so much with applications where you need to have relative error to combine it in the in the bigger picture to get a relative error the output of for the f2 estimator if you have an absolute error it wouldn't work and I think for, for other types of matrix multiplication, if you want to have uh, the, so if you want if you multiply and you want to have the relative error, then you, and you know what, uh, you're tracking the vector, but you know the matrix, then you propagate the uh, relative error where the absolute error will be uh, less, less clear. You wouldn't have any guarantees on that. So this gives you a, at least some guarantees in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of bigger system. But I agree, it's not really, uh, it's, it's somewhat a choice of convenience, I guess. I was wondering, will this work when some of the input is manipulated in case you think you apply this to like page ranking or giving, uh, you know, you get more inputs to, to create like with, uh, the top ads that are more relevant to somebody just artificially <coughs> provides more data which is not really... I guess this is... Uh, I'm not sure if you can protect from that from the point of view of this model because the model says if, I, if you give me the sequence of items, right, 
I will give you a correct answer of the sequence, right? So if the sequence is, uh, is already uh, affected, then I can't say. I'll just give you the correct answer on the sequence. So it has to be sorted out elsewhere, I guess. It's somewhat related to the Byzantine question as well. I mean, this is really the, how you model what, it, what comes in there, right? Bounds or order bounds, and so there's a prefactor. Did you do any simulations? Did you know what those prefactors are like? Are they a billion or are they one? We did, I mean, it was, it, it did improve. I guess it was, uh, I can't, I have that dissimulation somewhere. So it, interestingly, the community was theoretical enough they didn't even ask for simulations. So it's like uh, in, a, in a machine learning community or something, even if you have very theoretical paper, they would at least ask you for a figure. These guys, they don't even care to see those. <laughs> so we've done some simulations for that, and we've, we've seen that there is an improvement. I mean, I, the thing is that with a, a pro, I, mean, I, I can't claim this is realistic or not. The problem is that with the order, right, asymptotics, you can, if you increase enough, you'll get improvement. Uh, and, and, and here with big data, you can always claim like, I'm going to index the entire world or whatever. So <laughs> I think for, for uh, tens or hundreds of billions things. So the key thing is you choose like, how, many, um, how many items do you want to process. But then you compare this with the size of your data center, which how many nodes you have, and what is the epsilon error. So if you take epsilon error being 1% and you have hundreds or thousand nodes and you have, I don't know, 100 million items, you have significant gains. But uh, if you tweak some of these parameters, you can, you can be actually worse off. Right? You can, uh, if, you have, uh, if you have too few data points, it's maybe better to talk more often because there are not many enough, not enough to, to, to right. So, uh, just thank you for